0: This passage, as we look at 2 Kings chapter 5, I don't know if you realize, but it's one passage where we see a number of the Ten Commandments violated. We see greed, we see lying, we even see the Lord's name in vain. And I'm going to point that out here in just a minute. But first, I just want to show this short video clip about the Ten Commandments. So if Ken would go and turn that on, and I'm going to dim these lights. So Ken, if you go ahead and share my put my PowerPoint up there now. Thank you, Steve. So we see here. We're going to look at Gehazi, and as we look at Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, we look at what he did. We see a number of these Ten Commandments violated. So though the sermon is not about the Ten Commandments per se, we do see some of them violated, and it behooves us, and we must take warning. That sometimes we may be violating them and not even realize it. So pray the Lord's conviction on those things. We're going to look at Gehazi, though. You know, as we look at Gehazi, we're going to see Gehazi as Elijah's servant who got greedy. Gehazi was Elijah's servant, and he got greedy. We were introduced a little bit to Gehazi in the previous section. Last week, we talked about Naaman. And and Naaman was this uh, leader, this general in Syria, and he had leprosy. And he was healed. He was healed by Elijah. About greed, Chuck all writes, Ministry serves others. Greed serves self. Ministry calls a woman or a man to set aside selfish gain in order to assist another. Greed is an excessive or reprehensible desire to acquire something for the benefit of self. A minister must live by the highest ethical standard, especially in regard to wealth and material possessions. A greedy person will sacrifice his or her ethical standard when it blocks a path to an object of desire. Whereas ministry uses things to serve people, greed uses people to obtain things. Greed is never acceptable. Some work hard to rationalize it, sanctify it, even attempt to build a theology around it. Still, greed is a deadly enemy of genuine service to others. Interesting about that, Zogby recently conducted a large benchmark poll in which respondents identified greed and materialism as the number one most urgent problem in American culture. Poverty and economic justice finished in second place. So greed finished higher in first place than poverty and economic justice as the number one most urgent problem in American culture. In a 2014 Vanity Fair poll, 78% of Americans disagreed, disagreed with the famous Gordon Gekko quote, greed is good. Only 19% agreed, 19% agreed that greed is good. A recent poll of, of economists readers asked, What is the deadliest sin? And greed ranked number one. But surprisingly, although everyone thinks greed is a terrible problem, most people don't think they are greedy. When the BBC conducted a poll on the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly sins would be anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Greed was last on the list in answer to two questions. Which sin have you ever committed and which sin have you committed in the past month? Greed was last on that list. Plenty of Brits cop to being lazy, proud, envious, and angry. But greedy, seventh out of seven, last on the list. Tim Keller argues even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Greed hides itself from the victim. That's an interesting way of putting things. Today we look at Gehazi, Elijah's servant. We began this section last week. Last week we saw Naaman healed, and now we see Naaman want to pay Elisha. Naaman wants to pay Elijah for healing him. Elijah refuses to pay, but his servants, his servant, Gehazi, schemes to get the money. My theme today is a Gehazi, Elijah's servant who got greedy. Gehazi, Elijah's servant who got greedy. And here's an application. Greed leads to a multitude of sins. As I said in this passage, we kind of see the Ten Commandments just being, you know, violated one after another because of greed. Greed leads to a multitude of sins. We already read the passage, or hopefully you read alongside Haley and Kylie, and my thanks to them for reading this passage. So we're going to just jump right into it. I encourage you to look at the passage as we talk about it. First, we see Naaman's offer. In verses 15 through 19, we see Naaman's offer. Naaman comes back to Elijah and makes an offer. This is picked up after the healing of Naaman, as I mentioned. Verse 15 says, when he returned to the man of God, that is he being Naaman, this is about Naaman. When Naaman returned to Elijah, Elijah is a man of God. By the way, that is a wonderful title. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, they give this wonderful title to Elijah. Elijah is considered a man of God. And by the way, hopefully we are all pursuing godliness and holiness and righteousness. Hopefully we, are, we all are pursuing being a man or a woman of God. Not both at the same time, though. But. Hopefully we're all pursuing being a man of God if you're a man, a woman of God if you're a woman. so Elijah didn't call himself a man of God. They called him a man of God because he pursued God. He followed God. He was God's prophet. Okay. So Naaman is a military commander in Aram, Syria. We talked about that last week. He's a great military commander. He's their five-star general. He's their general patent. And Naaman has now dipped seven times in the Jordan River. And now he returns to Elijah and wanting to pay him. Notice, by the way, when he comes to Elijah, he comes with his with this big company. He comes with his motorcade. He comes with his entourage. I know a lot about these because I watch Madam Secretary. Well, I used to. Not anymore. And I watch Blue Bloods. <laughs> and if you've ever seen those shows, whenever the Secretary of State and Madam Secretary travels, she has a whole motorcade with her. And whenever... Um, uh, Tom Selleck, as a police commissioner in Blue Bloods Travels, he has his little guards, his people with him. That's really what's going on here with this military commander. Um, Naaman is traveling with his motorcade, with his whole company. You know, and uh, once we were driving on Interstate 71, we were coming back from Cincinnati to to Alliance and they had to close down Interstate 71 because the president was coming through. They had a motorcade and imagine that, put that in the reality here, Naaman travels with this motorcade and this whole motorcade pulls up in front of Elijah's home and wants to offer him something. Notice Naaman gives a lot of credit to the Lord. Naaman has now been healed and he essentially says that only God is the Lord in Israel. That is an amazing statement, by the way, because Naaman is not Jewish. Naaman is a pagan person from a pagan land, from Syria, from Aram. He's from he's the foreigners. But now that he's been healed, he is saying that the Lord alone is God. There's no God besides the God of Israel. And if you remember from the previous section, Elijah, Elisha, sorry, God's sense of humor, Elijah to Elisha. Elisha wanted to heal Naaman so that Naaman would know that there is a prophet in Israel. They may not have prophets. Israel has prophets. Now Naaman knows there is a prophet in Israel. And now Naaman also knows the Lord, the Lord is the only God. And by the way, Naaman's statement, giving credit to the Lord, is more than most Israelites during that day would even say. A lot of the Israelites during this day and age were following after pagan gods. A lot of the Israelites during this day and age were going into idolatry, worshiping the Baals, even getting into child sacrificing and things that so deplorable as that. But right now, right now, Naaman, um, right now, Naaman, this, this, this person from a pagan land, is saying, the Lord, the Lord is the only God. The Lord is the only God. He now offers gifts, a gift to Elijah, Elisha. You know, Naaman likely comes from the background where you pay the prophets. If you want something done for you, you give them money. You pay them for it. And and he must believe that they have to be paid for what they do. But Elisha will not take the gift. In verse 16, Elisha claims the Lord with what he says. Notice that. Notice that. Elisha says, as the Lord lives. He's saying I'm bringing the Lord into this matter. I'm bringing the Lord into this matter. Now, Elisha brings the Lord into this matter right now in a good thing. Later on, we are going to see Gehazi do the same thing. Gehazi brings the Lord into his sin, into his deceit, into his greed. Elisha says, as the Lord lives. We serve a living God. Elijah stands before the Lord, and the Lord is his witness. Elijah is saying, this is the Lord's will. Elijah refused to take anything. Naaman urged him, but he still would not take anything. And this is extremely honorable of Elisha. You know, I'm sure that Elisha could have used the money for something, but he refused. And I must ask myself, do I have that kind of integrity? Do we have that kind of integrity, like Elisha, where we can refuse a lot of money? A lot of money. It's like a quarter of a billion dollars. It's a lot of money that he's offering him. Elijah was recognizing that he did not do anything. The Lord did the miracle. Therefore, he could not take the money. The Lord did the miracle. Therefore, Elijah could not take the money. I like how Swindoll makes this come alive. Chuck Swindoll writes this. He says, the wise prophet dismissed him in peace, trusting that this was merely the beginning of the general's long journey to becoming a devout mature worshiper of the one true God. When someone becomes a brand new believer, realize this, Naaman is a brand new believer. When someone becomes a brand new believer, the next few days are crucial. The information he or she receives during that brief period may either confirm grace or steal it. You hear it? We can either confirm grace or steal it when somebody is a new believer. We say, okay, you have received a free gift, the free gift of salvation in Christ And your place in heaven is secure. Now you must be baptized. Now you must start tithing. Now you must clean up your life. Now you must give up cigarettes and alcohol and your foul language. And now you must, and now you must, and now you must. The poor new Christian is left to wonder, but you said I was free. What happened? When Naaman found he had been cleansed, he wanted to give the prophet a gift, not a bribe. Like before, before it was a bribe, now it's a gift, but a gift of thanksgiving. Observe Elijah's noble and unselfish reaction. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. 2 Kings 5.16. This is uh, more of what Chuck Swindoll writes. What Elijah refused was no small sum. We don't trade in towns and shekels, so let me convert the gift into today's currency. Naaman offered this humble servant of God 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. That comes to roughly $1.1 million. The clothes were by no means cheap, but they were probably included as a gesture of friendship with the original payback. Imagine the ministry potential of a sum like that in the hands of an honest prophet of God. And let's face it, if you were the one living on a prophet's salary, that would be enough money to make your eyes tear up. You'd be fixed for life, so why did Elijah refuse the gift? The gifts. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we can put enough clues together from this story to conclude that it was to reinforce a lesson that Naaman had learned. The Lord cannot be charmed. His salvation is freely given by grace through faith. Taking Naaman's money... Would compromise that message by the way I said it was around a quarter of a billion dollars that was actually in the first section and what we talked about last week when Naaman first came and first was asking for healing he brought the equivalent of about a quarter million a quarter of a billion dollars so apparently now it's gone down some to about 1.1 million dollars that's still quite a sum of money you know for, for uh, Elisha to refuse As we continue in verses 17 through 18, Naaman is sharing how he will carry dirt back and make a sacrifice to the Lord. Naaman recognized that they will only offer to the Lord. In Exodus 20, verse 24, God instructed them about making altars of dirt. And what seems to be going on here, by the way, is that Naaman wanted to take Israelite dirt, dirt from Israel, and take it to his foreign land to worship the Lord with an altar made on the dirt from Israel. The dirt from Israel. He wants to take dirt back to build an altar. Verse 19 shows that Elisha sends him away in peace. And Elisha does not approve or disapprove of this. And by the way, there's a little bit more there that I'm not going to talk about. Fisan saying this. Um, Naaman says that when he goes back into the temple, what what he's talking about here is he's he's asking for forgiveness ahead of time. What he's talking about here is that when he goes back to the pagan temple with his master, in other words, when he goes back to the king with the king of Aram, the king of Syria, and he's in that temple, he asks for forgiveness. He's basically saying that he's going to still have to go into that temple with the king, with the master. But he's only going to worship the one true God. He's only going to worship the one true God. As we continue here, we now see Gehazi's lust and lies. In verses twenty through twenty-four, it shifts, and this is very interesting. In verse twenty, the narrative switched to Gehazi. This is different because he has not had the spotlight until now. Up until now, the spotlight has been on Elisha and Naaman, and now the spotlight uh, splits, (laughs) splits, splits, and now the spotlight switches to Gehazi. Gehazi is modified by the servant of Elijah, the man of God. Notice. Notice the writer is still saying, Elisha is a man of God. Gehazi is the servant of Elisha. Which makes what's about to happen even a bigger deal. The servant of Elisha, the servant of the man of God, is about to get greedy. I'm sorry. better get some water. Break. Okay, we're back. Anyways, um, so Gehazi is about to get greedy, but Gehazi is a servant of the Lord. Gehazi is a servant of Elisha. Gehazi is a servant of the man of God. And this is showing who he is and who he's connected to, which is critical for what's about to happen. This verse also clues us into Gehazi's thinking. Gehazi thought, or he said to himself. Isn't that interesting? It says that. It says that Gehazi thought. Gehazi said to himself. You know, this sermon could focus on controlling our thinking. Thinking can be dangerous, by the way. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, tells us what to think on. Colossians 3, 1 through 2, tells us to think on things in heaven, things that are above. Philippians 4, 8 also talks about our thinking. Things Thinking on things that are true and right and pure and holy. Things of a good reputation. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 tells us to take every thought into captivity. Not some thoughts. Every thought into captivity. That means that when I or we have negative thoughts, thoughts of thoughts that are bad towards others, thoughts that are greedy, thoughts that are selfish, we need to push them out. Right here Gehazi thinks to himself that Elisha could use that money. Elisha has turned away a lot of money. And so Gehazi, starting with his thinking, is going to go on And take that money. Take the possessions. We must focus on positive and not good thoughts. You know, we can gossip in our head, and that is not good. Don't let our our mind have that idle negative chit-chat. Sin begins in our mind. We start thinking, I deserve better. We start thinking, I deserve a nice car like that. And then we lust. We get envious. We start thinking, I work hard. This pornography helps me relax. Then sin begins or maybe it's different. We are meditating on a person of the opposite sex. We think, well, they dress that way. That is their choice. If she's going to dress that way, I will look. Nope, we can't do that. We may think, I'm a man. God gave me these desires. Not true. Not good. It starts in the mind. It starts in the head. Or we think, it's only a white lie. It's only a white lie. It's only a little change in the tax forms. It's only a little bit I'm holding back. Sin begins this way. And we must make our thoughts bounce. We must change the channel in our head. Imagine your mind like a, a, a cable TV, so to speak, and you're flipping through the channels, but you're flipping through the channels in your head. And your, your mind settles on something that's bad, something that's negative, something that's envious, lustful, pride, greedy, selfish, whatever it may be. Change the channel in your head. Sometimes we may have to change the channel in our head a few times. <laughs> Because we change it and it's going to another bad channel. Keep changing the channel. Focus on the Word of God. Screen your thinking with the Word of God. Screen your thinking with the Word of God. By the way, this is the high value of memorizing it and meditating on Scripture. When you meditate, you take a passage of Scripture and you think, I'm going to meditate on this passage all day long. Every chance I get for free thinking, I'm gonna look at this scripture. Take a sticky note or a or a little index card and write a scripture on it and tape it to your dashboard, tape it to whatever, your desk, your computer, what your whatever you're looking at, and you're gonna focus on it all day. Second Corinthians ten five. Every time my thinking goes to that, I'm gonna think about taking every thought into captivity unto obedience to Christ. Philippians 4 8. Think on things that are true and right and pure and holy. Focus on that. Or maybe it's 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. <laughs> maybe you need to focus on that. Meditate on the scripture all day long. James 4, uh, 4. friendship with the world is enmity with God. Uh, James 4, 6 through 7. Uh, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't forget that submit to God part. Meditate on the scriptures. Memorize the scriptures. Put the scriptures in your mind so that that's what you're thinking about. Because we know those are things of God. Getting back to Gehazi here. So we were clued into Gehazi's thinking. The sin, the greed, the deceit, it begins in his mind. Gahazi is justifying his greed. Gehazi says, Elisha, this is what Gehazi was thinking. Elisha, his master, spared Naaman by not taking what he brought. He's justifying. It's beginning in his head. Notice also how Gehazi says, as the Lord lives. If you continue looking look at the passage, this means that Gehazi is including the Lord in his greed and deceit. Gehazi is including the Lord in this. This is, this is amazing. He's actually going to include the Lord in this. This is an example of taking the Lord's name in vain. He is, even, he is even basically saying that this is the Lord's will. We think maybe, maybe you think this, it's true though. We may think taking the Lord's name in vain means to add the Lord's name to some curse word. And that certainly is using the Lord's name in vain. Vain means worthlessly. But we use the Lord's name anytime we attribute something to God that's not of God. Right here, Gehazi is including the Lord in something that is sinful, something that is wrong. He's including the Lord in something that is not of the Lord. That is using the Lord's name in vain. As the Lord lives, I'm going to go and sin. As we continue this, we see that Gehazi catches up to him by running. In verse 22, we see Gehazi talk with Naaman. Now there is a total lie. There's an application. That is that greed gets us into lies. Lies then build up. He says this is from his master, Elijah. Two young men of the sons of the prophets have arrived. They came from Ephraim. He says, please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. In verse 23, we see that Naaman gives him what he asks. But Naaman doubles the amount of the silver. The IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary says, "Considering what Naaman had been prepared to offer, Gehazi's request is extremely modest. Yet it is still a considerable sum. A talent of silver is 300 years of wages. For someone making 30 to 35,000 a year, that'd be like getting about 10 million dollars." And Naaman doubles it. Gehazi is trying to set himself up for life. In verse 24, they come to his house and the servant leaves. Now we see Gehazi's lie and we see the consequences. There's already been a little bit of a lie. Now there's going to be more. We're in verse 25 and Elisha is present. I don't know if they live together or not, but Elisha is back in the narrative. Elisha asks where he has been. Elisha says, Gehazi, where have you been? Gehazi lies again. Gehazi looks right at Elisha and says, I went nowhere. A total outright lie right to Elijah's face. Does he not realize Elisha's a prophet? I mean, Gehazi has been his servant. If you read the previous chapters, we see amazing things happen between Elijah, and Gehazi is right there present. Elisha is a witness to many, many awesome miracles with Elijah, and yet he lies to him. He lies to a prophet of God. In verse 26, we see Elijah respond. Elijah essentially says that he was present spiritually when he went there. He was present. Elijah says that now is not the time to receive money and changes of clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants. By the way, Gehazi did not receive all those things. But those are things that Gehazi could get with the money that he received. An application here is Numbers 32.23. Be sure your sin will find you out. This is another scripture I would recommend memorizing. It's another scripture that we should, you know, take a screenshot of and make it on your phone. Every time you look at your phone or your computer or your desk or your car, you see, be sure your sin will find you out. We think our sin is hidden, but it is not. The Lord sees everything. You know, the Lord sees everything. We'll just leave it at that. In verse 27, we see the consequence. Now, Gehazi receives the leprosy. It says that Gehazi will receive the leprosy that Naaman was healed of and he will receive it for life. <coughs> Another way to sum this up, Chuck Swindoll says, apparently Gehazi repented, though he was never cleansed of the consequence, his leprosy. According to Hebrew law, he was able to continue serving as Elijah's assistant because his skin had turned completely white. Leviticus thirteen twelve through 13 says, once it turns completely white, you can continue serving. Later, Gehazi would stand before King Jehoram as a servant of Elisha. So he continues serving Elisha. He had been restored to ministry, but his white, flaking skin would forever remind him of three mental images. Three mental images. The face of the Syrian, whose faith he compromised. That's one. The disappointed look of his master, Elisha, whom he had undermined. Two. And the awful day when he gave in to greed. Three. He had the continual reminder of what he had done. In a moment, we're gonna finish the close the service, finish the service with a wonderful hymn. And I wanna read about it as I close this sermon. It's gonna be hymn number five, 650, six fifty. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. And you know, what a great way to close this as we sing that. As it's so applicable, would we also rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Once that greed forms in the mind, it germinates, so to speak, and it grows, and and it gives other sins, lust and murder and envy and whatever else it may be. I am going to pray here in a minute, but let me read about this wonderful hymn. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. The inspiring and challenging words of this hymn, written by Mrs. Rhea Miller, so influenced a 23-year-old, George Beverly Shea. You all know of George Beverly Shea. He was the hymn leader for the Billy Graham Ministries. had a wonderful, deep voice. So this hymn, this poem, wonderfully influenced George Beverly Shea that they determined the direction of his entire life. As he began to compose a melody for these moving lines, he decided to devote his singing talent to God's glory alone. Growing up with devoted Christian parents, uh, George Beverly Shea was encouraged to use his fine singing voice often in the services of the Wesleyan Methodist churches, of which his father was a minister. Financial needs of the family uh, made it necessary for him to leave college and work in an insurance office. However, he continued singing in churches and for Christian radio programs. Unexpectedly, he was offered an audition for a secular singing position in New York City and passed the test. The opportunity for a substantial salary and wide recognition made Bev's decision very difficult. One Sunday, as Bev went to the family piano to prepare a song for the morning service, he found there the poem, I'd Rather Have Jesus. It was a poem. His mother, who collected beautiful quotations and literary selections, had begun to leave some of them around the house for her son to read, hoping to guide him spiritually. Bev was deeply moved with the challenging message of this text. Immediately, he began to compose the music for the lines and use a song that same day in his father's church service. Bev Shea comments, Over the years, I've not sung any song... Any song more than, I'd rather have Jesus. But I never tire of Mrs. Miller's heartfelt words. As a young man of 23, Bev allowed the message of this text to guide him wisely to a wonderfully productive and worthwhile life of service to Christ as he shared his musical theme song with audiences around the world. I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus in houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus in men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus in worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. In the refrain, than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may that truly be our prayer. That we'd rather have you than silver or gold. And we'd rather have you than world acclaim. We'd have you, rather have you than really anything else. Lord God, I pray that we are committed to following you. And Lord God, I thank you that your word, the Bible, does not gloss over the sins of your people. That we can learn from them. Lord God, may we learn from Gehazi right here. And may we learn that greed often leads to other sins, such as lying and such as other things. Lord God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. And Lord God, may we be committed to you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we cannot live the life as Christians without the Holy Spirit. So we'd ask that you would be our guide, and that the Holy Spirit would convict us to live for you, and not silver or gold or anything else. May we live self-sacrificially for you. And Lord God, if there's anyone here right now who does not know you, may today be the day that they commit to you as Lord and Savior, confessing they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you, and trusting in you. May today be the day where they firmly make the decision to be with you, in order to become like you, and to learn and do all that you say and do and arrange our affairs around you. Help us, Lord, to arrange our affairs around you, to rather have you than anything else. You are all we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want to come forward during this closing hymn, the altars are open. You can come forward to this altar on your right and just pray alone. We won't come up and join you. If you come forward to the altar on on your left, somebody could come forward with you or we would be glad to come forward and pray with you during the closing hymn.